This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. This past week has been a particularly busy one, as well as Radiothon, obviously. The Melbourne Writers' Festival kicked off last Friday and despite illness, I did manage to get to a few of the sessions, most notably at the Frontier Wars with Marcia Langdon and Henry Reynolds at the weekend and last night with uh, the Glasshouse's own Beth A.Q. to see Indian author and journalist Deepanjana Powell. Her talk, which was sort of looking at the uh, impact of the Me Too movement in India, um, will probably be published as an essay in maybe the Writers' Festival newsletter. It'll be well worth reading. Um, and Beth A.Q. did an interview with Deepanjana on The Glasshouse a couple of weeks ago. If you missed it, you can catch up on Triple R's recently updated radio on demand feature which is just fantastic and it's been helping me stay across some of the station's amazing content also in town for the festival uh over the past week was Brooklyn-based author Maria Devana Headley. I managed to catch up with her earlier this week to discuss her new book, The Mere Wife, a modern take on Beowulf, the epic poem often credited as the oldest surviving long-form story in Old English. I'll be playing that interview very, very soon. Uh, And later in the hour, I'll be joined by Sanaz uh, Fatui, an Iranian-Australian academic and writer who will be here to talk about a Persian Feast for Thought, an event with uh, Sanaz and two other Iranian-Australian thinkers, writers and uh, intellectuals who will cover topics on the Iranian diaspora, unpicking the supposed clash of worldviews between Iranian and Western cultures. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm very croaky still, Mel Cranenberg. One of this year's Melbourne Writers' Festival guests uh, was author Maria Devana Headley, best known for works that tip into the fantastical. The US author's latest book, The Mere Wife, is a modern retelling of the epic old English poem Beowulf. I caught up with Maria earlier in the week to ask about the book, how she'd reinterpreted the original work and its all-too-modern relevance, and I'm going to be playing that for you now. Maria Devana Headley, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me on. Now, your book, The Mere Wife, is a reinterpretation of the novel Beowulf, which is supposedly the first novel ever written in English or a version of English. It's a, a great um, verse-style novel that tells the story of a monster, uh, Grenwald, that is attacking a great hall uh, and is then killed by the hero Beowulf, uh, who's come from Scandinavia or similar. Uh, Your novel does something very, very different with this. It sets it in the modern world in America um, and in a kind of version of suburbia that I actually find extraordinarily creepy, although suburbia is kind of creepy, to be completely honest. Can you, uh, in your own words, sort of describe your story and the premise that you've derived from this original tale? Yeah, so in this, uh, in my book, The Mere Wife, 
There is a gated community, a suburban gated community surrounding a mountain that's still wild. And the gated community has been built on ground that has has not been uh, taken easily from the people who has, have lived there for a long time. So it's, it's seized ground. It's essentially been stolen. And uh, in my novel, a veteran of of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars is hidden on the mountain with her son. She comes back from the war pregnant. She doesn't know what happened. She's been kidnapped. She She's had a dark PTSD history. And she comes back and gives birth to her son, Gren. And uh, she's in a cave on the mountain. And below her is this suburban community that has a young son named Dill or Dylan. And her son, Grendel, kind of falls in love with the young boy of the suburbs. So it's it's the two little boys find each other in friendship, in love. And Dana, who's the who's the Grendel's mother equivalent, Grendel's mother is one of the big monsters of the original, um, is is protecting her son. And down in the suburb, Hrothgar's wife equivalent, who is the wife of the king, she's the hostess of the suburb, she's the, she's the queen of suburbia, is protecting her own son. And also protecting her status in the in the suburban community. So the two of them have a a clash. They don't really meet each other, but the the clash between their two cultures and their two class uh, brackets is what this novel is about. Like a lot of great modern interpretations of of old classics, you you definitely turn the kind of villain hero, uh, I guess, narrative on its head. Uh, you know, Grenwald and Grenwald's mother was were very much the villains of the original piece. Although anyone, I guess, who's read Beowulf or an interpretation of it, uh, more literal one would probably feel quite sorry for the mother character because basically she's lost her her child in the original. Mm-hmm. This is not only different in, in the sense of how things operate, and I, I don't want to give anything away because there are so many wonderful surprises, but also where you start. Uh, Beowulf starts kind of right in the middle of things. You're already, you know, um, in the hall when things are, are happening, when this monster has been attacking this is very different in that you actually get all this wonderful backstory of, um, you know, of, of Dana and her and his, her child and where they come from and this kind of strange mythological beginning um, to Gran's existence, which mm-hmm. is so beautifully drawn. Mm-hmm. What did you hope to achieve with that? And and you know, was there a great delight to being able to kind of dig those kind of you know, as as Virginia Woolf puts it, those beautiful caves behind your characters. Yeah, well, in the original, in the original Beowulf, Grendel's mother, we don't really hear about her until she shows up and she shows up to take her son's body back to essentially to bury it. She's a single mother. We know she doesn't, there's no father. She's not married. Um, And she, her son has been killed by Beowulf. She comes to get his body and she kills someone. And that's all. She just kills one person. But we don't get any of her backstory. We don't have any idea how she became. She's essentially the queen of her own kingdom. She's been there for 50 years. We know that. We know that she looks like a woman. And in my opinion, she probably is a human woman. Um, so I was interested in in this novel in getting a sense of, of where a person like that would come from, a person that, that the surrounding community has no knowledge of. And that's, of course, the history of transgressive women throughout time, right, is that often we have been invisible. We and they have been invisible. So, so yeah, so it was, it was very satisfying to me to, to tell the backstory of Dana and to tell a story of a woman raising her child in peace, essentially, until, 
until the surrounding community freaks out, which is, I think, what happens in Beowulf as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, as well, you know, when you you read kind of, I guess, mythology or classic works um, and you consider that a lot of the, you know, strong female characters in them are actually these super villains, you know, there is that really underlying sense of a fear of female power mm-hmm. um, kind of codified into them, which I guess you've employed uh, in quite a different way in this book. Uh, one of the things I do really want to touch on here, though, is there's so many warlike metaphors running throughout this, but in ways that you don't expect. Um, you know, Dana's escaped a, a war zone, a, a literal one in Afghanistan, um, and she is scarred by that. She clearly has some kind of PTSD, um, as do others in, in this book. Um, but there's other warlike metaphors used here, one in particular for the matriarchs, um, who, and I do want to talk about the craft of this, you refer to in, in the first person plural as a we, this great yes. kind of army of matriarchs. Can you talk to me about those sections? Yeah, there are sections in the book. The, the book is from many different POVs. We have we have the POV of Dana. We have the POV of Willa, who's the wife in suburbia, and it's a third-person POV. We are, she, as I think many of us would in a scenario like this one, refers to herself in the third person. And then there's a, there's a pack of matriarchs who I see as the soldiers of suburbia. They're the ones who are kind of keeping masculine power intact. They're the wives and the mothers, and they're called the mothers. Um, and they, they speak as a we. They are very invested in making sure that Willa doesn't lose her status and that they don't lose their status. And yeah, that's, that was something that came to me as I was, I was thinking about the ways that we, literally I'm doing it too, that we speak collectively when we want something sometimes. <laughs> so I have two collective POVs. There's also a collective POV of the, of the mountain and the natural landscape that is, that, that Dana lives on. There's, there's kind of a natural world POV that's an inanimate and slash ghost POV that we hear from as well. And even a dog at one stage. Yes, a pack of police dogs as well. Of, yeah, a pack of police dogs, yeah. you're right. It wasn't just an individual. You do blend that in so beautifully, that sense of collectivism that just naturally gets slotted into this and, you know, uh, the, the change in voice all the time, playing with the kind of pronoun to to kind of challenge how we're looking at the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that like something that you really enjoyed playing with? Is it something you often do in your work? Well, I was looking at my history of publications because I've written I've written several books. Um, I don't usually like to write from a single POV. I like to I like to look at the story from lots of different angles, and one of the ways to do that is to use different POVs and POVs that have limited information always. So they're looking in this case, the two women are looking at each other's landscapes and and living in fear of each other's landscapes, and that's because they don't have all the information. So I I find that to be a way to talk about the way our world works all the time anyway. Like we're, we're always looking at, quote, the other and thinking, oh, no. And uh, that's something that's been created by, by aggressive removal of information and also changing information linguistically in order to make us scared of each other. 
If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to 3RRR. The show is Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Maria Devana Headley, the author of The Mere Wife, who's here for the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Uh, the Mere Wife is a modern reinterpretation of Beowulf. And I, one of the great delights of this book as well is that you've littered this with references to the original uh, in ways that are unexpected. So those that know the original tale well will notice elements creeping in, but definitely not attributed necessarily to the characters that you expect or in the ways that you expect, but are all kind of expected traits. Uh, did you have particular fun with this element? And, um, you know, and were you trying to, like, particularly um, with some of the kind of, I, again, I really don't want to give away exact details. But, you know, I, I do think there was one particular element, I hope you don't mind if I say it, but um, but at one stage, a little boy nearly kind of chokes on, on it on a Lego or a sort of toy king's head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that was an absolutely delightful detail. Um, did you have a lot of fun with those elements? Oh, I did. In that case, it's I divided the Grendel character into these two little boys. So there's, you know, Gren and Dylan, and they're, the, they're Grendel. And Grendel in the original is known for going in, taking, seizing 30 warriors and, and eating them. Um, so I thought, well, what, what happens in our contemporary world if Grendel is six years old and he's a little boy and not actually a monster? And it was, it was like Lego King. I thought, okay, to, to choke on a Lego is exact. We're going to understand what that means. And there's something about it that is very, in our world, very powerful. The, the notion of choking on a Lego is as powerful as the notion of of ch- chomping down on a king, you know, in some ways, in terms of parental logic of what is important and for the for the parents in this in this scenario, as their child puts a Lego in his mouth and swallows it, it's like the worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah. So I had fun doing those things for it's sure. Really, it's really great, um, and I have to say as well. Look, obviously, this is such it's such an obvious thing to to take away from this book, and and I'm sure many interviewers already have, but it is impossible not to to sort of think of this in the political context that's current in the United States and the world, Mm -hmm. uh, there's obviously this fear of the outsider. It's never entirely clear, you know, exactly who Gran is, whether Gran is in fact the monster that uh, his mother thinks he may that we fear, Mm -hmm. um, that we've been encouraged to fear, Mm -hmm. I guess, by, uh, you know, by the political class, by by the sense of, uh, I guess, rising... Were you sort of pulling in to really, you know, draw people's attention to these kinds of modern concerns? Well, I think the notion of a gated community is easily applicable to the notion of a gated country. And in America, of course, we've been having lots of discourse about this topic because of our president who, you know, wants to build a wall around the whole country and and has had a lot of on many occasions has referred to refugees, to immigrants as monsters. That's a word he likes to use. So for me, this is really contemporary. All of this mythology has been used throughout time to build a narrative of how of heroes versus monsters. And um and I see as since I've been here in Australia, similar similar difficulties in your in your political situation wherein much of the same rhetoric is being enacted. We're really all talking I hope this is the last stand of of that that element. I hope I hope that we are in a moment where there's a frantic panic and these old dudes who are insisting on controlling the country and being the kings 
this is just the last round. I, I hope it's, well, that's why I write books like this. I'm mm. in, in an attempt to change the rhetoric because I am very interested in a scenario in which other people can be heroes who are not, who are not just old white men, essentially. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, there's a lot of, you know, you, you do get a lot of a sense of, you know, that kind of, I mean, I'm not, without giving too much away, let's just say that, um, the, the monsters and, and the villains get righted in the end. You mm-hmm. really, you, you know, things end away in a, in a satisfying way. Um, so to speak, I think, uh, you know, you've kind of went wound in things like that kind of digging up the bodies or, you know, the, the fact that the land has been stolen. Community, um, and all sorts of hidden things. Uh, but one of the, the kind of really interesting characters and, and challenging characters in this book, uh, and it reminds me, I guess, of, you know, the kind of um, recent uh, Handmaiden's Tale kind of um, uh, interpretation for television, uh, and that's Willa, mm-hmm. the um, the woman who is, you know, originally just a kind of suburban housewife who basically seems to be kind of being disbelieved because she thinks that there's a monster out there who's, you know, trying to get to her son or get to her life. She's deeply unhappy. She's kind of subjugated in this very sort of, you know, I guess traditional fashioned way. But Right from the beginning, you get the sense that there are the seeds of a real villain <laughs> brewing there and she satisfyingly develops accordingly. Um, can you talk about Willa? Because she's not in, you know, she's, she's not a two-dimensional character by any stretch. Well, Willa is essentially, she comes from the trope of the suburban novel. I, I, when I was first writing this book, I was considering things like Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates, which is a novel of... of commuter misery. And the woman in that novel is especially miserable. She's she's trapped at home in the suburbs and her husband goes into the city to work and she doesn't have a satisfying life. And it ends very badly for her. She's, she's so miserable. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to write a character who who is that, but is also based on the hostess trope from Old English, uh, the Old English poetry, who is someone who has been married to essentially create peace. She's like a peace weaver and she's in charge of dispensing status to the men. She's in charge of like moving, bringing the cup around and, and giving, giving people blessings essentially. And having been a woman in the world myself with many of those roles sometimes handed to me saying, okay, now it's your turn to, now you nurture, you're a nurturing person, you're a woman, that's what you do. I I have myself bridled against those roles. I want I wanted I wanted to be respected. I didn't want to be treated as you're a character who only only gets to love the children. I wanted to make my work. And I think she's someone who doesn't have a specific work to do. Her work is she doesn't have her own passion. So and, she, and her passion is not child rearing. She's, she's quite miserable in this and, but that's the job that she's been given. And so she's, she's kind of surrounded by small children and she hates it. So her villainy slash complexity rises from a combination of jealousy of the power of small children and feelings of her power being entirely attached to her husband, that she could not have any power if she was by herself. So so she becomes someone who, I was thinking in this case about the 2016 election, um, in which white women voted for Trump. <laughs> and I, and this, and Willa is a white woman, I was thinking about what would cause, I mean, I didn't for Trump, but I was like, okay, what would cause a large group of women to vote against their own interests, which we certainly, 
that group certainly did, voting for for a man who whose whole team does not believe in in birth control and doesn't believe it's it's really anti woman platform and mm. these women lots of white women voted for him so I thought well what would cause a woman to vote for her enemy and uh, that's how I created Willa it's someone who thinks that her enemy will bring her power. This is an interesting point at which to mention um, the original titular character, Beowulf, who has uh, made a a new kind of entry as Ben Wolf, uh, Mm -hmm. who is a police officer, kind of, you know, not really, has kind of stalled in his career, I guess, in a sense. He was originally a Marine and now he's kind of a, you know, just a local cop. Um, Mm -hmm. But he has some ambition. He's already in his 40s. He's looking after himself. But, you know, you've got that sense of him being rather a kind of small, egoed um, or, you know, character that um, doesn't have a great deal of self-esteem and is sort of trying to you know, use his overt masculinity as a way of somehow getting more. Um, you know, he's not really that kind of hero of mm-hmm. the piece, um, you know, as in the original, um, but he sort of steals uh, the limelight um, and tries to create himself a hero. There's an allegory in this uh, as well as there is in all of this book, Um but in Ben Wolf particularly, I felt like there was one for this sense of American patriotism or patriotism itself, um, some sense of, you know, what it is that we thought of as heroes and, and what they really are. Is is that a kind of an interpretation that you feel is fairly accurate for this character? I do, yes. I, I was really thinking as I was creating this character about, again, it was all inspired by what, what the country I live in, what is... Why are men having such a problem? <laughs> why can they, why do they feel like they don't have status when in fact they have lots of status? But there's in as in Australia, I saw there was the the men's rights march the other day. I actually actually accidentally I'm very sorry you had to say that. I walked through it accidentally. I was walking to the Melbourne Festival and I took a wrong turn and walked right through the middle of that rally, which was not a happy state of affairs for them. I'm sure I was wearing a leopard print dress. I was very. <laughs> And I have a mohawk. <laughs> Fantastic. I do have to say, though, um, and this is a slight diversion, obviously, they were wearing T-shirts that said equality for men. Uh, yes. And I had to remark to my friend, look, that's all we want, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Um, you know, equality. Equality. So we're kind of on the same page if that's mm-hmm. what you're after. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, same. I was talking to my friend and we were talking about, well, OK, if you want equality, and you don't want women to rise, then you can come down to the level that we're being paid at. Okay, enjoy. <laughs> it's 27% less than you are exactly. in, in the States. And uh, all sorts of things are not very, will not feel fair to you if you want that equality. So enjoy, come yeah. along. But in, in the case of America and the case of status, I think that Ben Wolf is a man who's done a lot of things that should have brought him extreme status. And instead, he's, he's just kind of a dude. And he doesn't understand why, and it's frustrating. And I was thinking about in the in the American police system, and I know this has been international news because we've been having a real crisis about it. And it's not just recent; it's a longstanding crisis of of police officers targeting young black men, which is what Grendel is. Um, we have been; ha- it's a status crisis. It's like, how mm. can I become a hero? Well, a way to become a hero is to kill a monster, and a way to create a monster is to just insist that someone else is not a human, yeah. which is what our whole race discourse has longstandingly been in America. 
And I do really want to get to the kind of rather complicated heroes of the piece, I guess, you know, former villains that have been um, given their true status in this book, I guess, um, which is, you know, Dana and Gran or Gran's mother as mm-hmm. uh, Dana's known as well. Um, so, you know, these are interesting characters. There's one moment that I find particularly moving early on, um, you know, where Dana sort of goes down to the shops with baby gran um, and, you know, someone sort of looks over at the baby that she's clutching to her chest and then sees him and reacts really strongly. And that moment you've left deliberately ambiguous, Mm -hmm. you're not sure if it's because of the colour of his skin or because of some actual, you know, perceived otherness of of a more like kind of fantastical monstrous Mm -hmm. nature. And I love that you've done things that way because it could be either and it just, it really gave me such a a sudden jolt um, in that moment. So I think that was really brilliantly done. But Dana's a very complicated character Mm -hmm. particularly. Um, Talk to me about her because she sort of lands like a, this real, you know, she is kind of more of a mythical beast to me in some mm-hmm. ways. Well, she is, she's been a soldier. She's been a soldier for, for years of her adult life, for really her entire adult life, and then come, uh, been kidnapped during the war. So she, she, come, she sort of washes up six months pregnant, doesn't know what happened to her, has no memory of it, and is, and is on the run, goes into hiding with pregnant with her son who she then gives birth to. So she's she's a person who as much as the the suburban community is creating monsters, she is too because she's scared and she thinks there's no spot for us to live. We don't have a place in this society, which it turns out is, is pretty accurate. She's been pretty wounded. She has she has a lot of scars and she is a woman of color. And uh with with all of the things that the war has left her with. So she with this white suburb right below her, I think believes that there is not a safe place for her. And, but some of that is also mythic. She creates a narrative of down there in that suburb. Those are monsters. Don't go down there. And we are, I think left somewhat in the dark as to how much of that is true and how much of that is, is perception. And on both sides, the monsters are often perception rather than, than accurate real monsters, which I think is always true in the history of, of humans and heroes and monsters. We're always going, if I just change that slightly, if I look at that shadow the wrong Mm. way, monster as opposed to human. So her, her protection of her son is on the one hand, extreme maternal love. She loves him. She wants to keep him safe. On the other hand, it's, it's protecting him from the world that he wants to join. And Mm -hmm. his, his struggle is that he wants to join the world. And that is what creates the plot of the book. That's what creates the danger for him. He goes down and tries to join the world. And, and for her, that's, that's catastrophic. And maybe it, Maybe it needs to be, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it would be okay for him to join the world. Yeah, and it's that that you really play with so beautifully because, you know, a lot of what she does seems very paranoid. You know she's been very damaged by the war. Uh, You know, there's a lot of things going on and she's living like, you know, uh, this kind of survivalist in a a cave with her son. Uh, And you think, you know, she should just give him a chance and she should have tried it. But then you think about things like um, the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. and the fact that the very real fears that, uh, you know, mothers of young black men in particular or young black boys uh, have of their Yeah, those their are children. real. They're real. Like the the notion that your child, and in this case, Gren is, is tall. He's like, he's even as a very young child, he's quite tall. And 
Her fear is that he'll be mistaken for a man, which of course is exactly what has happened in mistaken, quote unquote. Um, no, that, that boy is a man, definitely not a boy. And we've seen that over and over. So the fear is real, I think, for a mother of a vulnerable son uh, that you and, and family, mother, father, everybody, that your son will be perceived as as someone who is threatening when in fact your son is just a kid. He's 12. He's, he's playing on the playground or he's, you know, he's walking down the street and it's happened over and over that young kids just walking down the street have been, have been thrown down by cops or shot by police. If they just, you know, take a small little running step. Oh, you must be running because you're a criminal that that's happening over and over. So I think her, her fears are legitimate. Now, um, I would love to talk to you much more about this book. There's so much in it. Uh, the writing is very beautiful in many places. And, um, you know, you've definitely got this wonderful sort of sense of craft throughout. But can I ask you, why did you choose uh, to use Beowulf as the template for this book? You could probably have drawn from so many places. I'm interested in why you chose this particular story. Well, I guess a big part of what caused me to choose this was that this is such a, a canonical text. It's it's the first, you know, narrative text in English, in, in old English in this case, but it's but it's it's the foundational text of English literature. And to go at that text and turn it into this. And, you know, by turn it into, I think it already is this kind of story. But to to apply it to our time and to our concerns as as humans living in, in the 21st century is pretty tempting to someone like me who's interested in how we make our myths, how we make our stories. And I know there are lots of other myths that I could have used probably. This one just happens to be really fervently about othering, in my opinion, and about about land seizure and about about all of these issues that are currently really in our in our heads. So I, I've always I've also always been interested in Grendel's mother. I always I like that she is uh, often mistranslated, and in in the translation I'm working on, it will be different. But she's usually translated as a monster, and the word that is used for her also is applied. It's the word for Beowulf as well, and usually for him it's hero, and for her it's hag. So I thought, okay, well we're in a moment where I can write a different version of that, where where the word means soldier. So so in the book, both Ben and Dana are soldiers. That's really fantastic, Maria Devana Headley. Thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. Thank you. And uh, Maria's book, The Mere Wife, is out now through Scribe. I very much recommend it. Fantastic read. Three. Triple. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. And I'm joined by one of those people, Sanaz Fatui, an Iranian-Australian academic and writer. She'll be part of an event next Tuesday uh, titled A Persian Feast for Thought um, with a number of other Iranian-Australian thinkers, writers and intellectuals covering a range of topics from the Iranian diaspora to this supposed clash of worldviews between Iranian and Western cultures, which is a debatable topic, obviously. Um, Sanaz, welcome to Backstory. 
Thank you. So uh, we have been sort of chatting a little bit uh, off air about some of the topics that are raised uh, at this event, which I believe is going to be held uh, at a restaurant in Templestowe, if I'm yes. not wrong. Do you, do you know what the actual event um, it's at Ali Rapu Restaurant, yeah. uh, which is in Templestowe. I don't know the address. <laughs> we'll put some details yeah. up as well um, if people are interested in going. I believe there's still tickets available. But I'm really interested in some of the topics that, that might be addressed here. And, um, and I imagine that with, uh, you know, four de- very different people um, coming, bringing their own views and experiences to the conversation, it's going to be a, a lively and interesting one. Um, but Sanaz, you have actually certainly written on um, your experiences, I guess, falling between worlds. Do you want to talk a little bit about your your background and um, and how you're coming at this this idea of, uh, you know, the gap between uh, Iranian and Australian, I guess? Well, for me, it's been an interesting journey. You know, um, everybody who comes to a different country has a different journey. Um, so oftentimes we say Iranian, Australian, and people have this perception of lumping everybody together. But my story, like um, the story of the other panelists, is very different on how I got to Australia. Um, I would consider myself an expat because my father used to be a banker. And as a result of his job, we traveled throughout Asia and then I ended up in Australia. So I've grown up in between not only the Iranian Australian culture, but also multiplicities of cultures in um, throughout Asia. So, yeah. So you've you've written actually a wonderful uh, essay that I do want to mention uh, because I I just found it a really extraordinarily interesting essay. It, it was uh, titled "Marooned in Uncertainty: uh, Negotiating an Island of Ambivalence," published in the Griffith Review. I believe it was midway through last year, yes. edition fifty seven. If you're looking for it online, if you look it up under Sanaz uh, Fatui, her last name is spelled F O T O U. H-I, uh, it's really worth reading. Um, you very, uh, you know, vividly describe your time spent on the island of Kish, which uh, I think you describe as being in the Persian Gulf just south, south of Iran. Uh, it's a really, it was a really interesting time. You were there for Christmas Eve 2015 and uh, you were in a restaurant that was largely populated by uh, Filipinos mm-hmm. who were working in the United Arab Emirates and were there on a break uh, to celebrate Christmas, presumably as well. Uh, and it was a really thriving, wonderful time. But within a year, it's changed. Uh, things have happened in the world. There was, uh, you know, the execution of a number of uh, prominent, um, you know, uh, people, um, Islamic kind of leaders uh, in the Arab Emirates and then there was a backlash by the Iranians and the people that got caught in the middle were not the people that you expect. Uh, and then later you, you yourself find yourself caught in yet another tide of politics. Can you talk a little bit about some of this story because I just found it extraordinary? Well, um, the idea for this actually came when I was traveling to the States um, at the height of the whole Trump um, um, travel bans on people from seven predominantly uh, Muslim countries. Um, So I was going to the States to DC of all places um, in early 2017 for a conference. And I found myself in a really difficult space because I have a um, dual nationality and um, I was actually in Iran when I had to travel to the States. So what happened was that 
I was ca- caught out in this ambivalent, ambivalent state of like, am I going to get get a visa? And if I, even if I do get a visa, am I going to be um, deported when I actually get to get to the other side of the you know border in in America? And this actually made me think about how much we are all uh, affected by bigger political pictures that are going on somewhere else in the world where we're absolutely like you know it may seem like we're not directly affected by it but we're all affected by it on all these levels and that's where that that Filipino story comes in because I actually um, knew these people that I feature in the article quite well they were family friends and this woman um, had um, a thriving restaurant like you mentioned catering only to the Filipinos and as a result of um, you know the the political situation between the UAE and Iran um, the UAE didn't allow Filipinos to come Filipinos and other nationals who were in the UAE to come to Iran for what is called the visa exchange so every year thousands of people used to come to the island of Kish to renew their visa and as a result they brought with them economic benefits they brought with them you know a little bit of money into the island and when that happened, um, this woman was forced to actually close her restaurant within a matter of like months because there was nobody else who was going to come into a restaurant. And I saw that as a direct result of bigger political pictures, bigger political things that were going on somewhere else in the world, but it affected people underground. And these are the stories that we actually don't hear. Absolutely. And I think you then get caught up in, you know, when when Trump comes in 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 the Muslim ban, you're stranded there on the island and then, you know, really are forced to ponder these things in a quite, you know, uh, personal way, um, how things are affected. But what I really did love about this is that I think sometimes uh, we still sort of are mired in a quite simplistic rhetoric about things like race, particularly in Australia, where I think we're very lacking in maturity uh, I would say, um, when it comes to, to the complexities of race and the fact that, you know, we're still looking at, at communities uh, who happen to come from a particular cultural background as all being the same. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're, you're looking at this, um, you know, you are, you know, talking about uh, like different viewpoints, um, the kind of even, you know, within, you know, the kind of Iranian and uh, UAE context, the kind of political chest beating that's, uh, that's on completely different sides of a uh, different sort of um, cultural groups within Islam um, is me- are mentioned, but then these very personal relationships. And one of the characters uh, in your story is half Filipino, half Iranian, who lives on the island, and she sort of, you know, brushes off some of the racism that she experiences uh, in a way that you can only imagine is sort of eating her a bit. Mm. But that kind of mixed race identity is is really well situated. I'm interested in how you think you might be addressing this question in terms of, you know, the talk that you're doing next week. Mm. What sorts of things came to mind when you sort of, you know, when this topic was posed, um, that this was a a way of sort of, you know, talking about the Iranian diaspora and, uh, you know, this notion of a a clash of worldviews between the West uh, and Iran? What kinds of things popped into your mind? Well, one of the things uh, that was prominent was that as four very different Iranians, we all hold very different views of what it means to be living outside of Iran because we carry such different experiences. For example, my experience is very different to Sholis, who is a poet who lives in America, or to Shukufes, who is, you know, who um, has recently come to Australia and she has had, she came on a 
uh, you know, she was an asylum seeker, um, or Mamad, who's been here for over almost 30 years. So um, that was one of the things that we want to actually explore to see how even us as Iranians um, living elsewhere are kind of viewing these topics so differently. Mm. Absolutely. Can we talk about some of the other writers? Is um, Shukafa Azai was shortlisted for the Stella Award um, as well. Um, Shole Volpe, sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, um, poet, playwright, and writer, and Mamad Adani, mm-hmm. um, who is also a theatre director as well as a poet and playwright and a teacher of philosophy at the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy. I imagine everyone's personal experience, but also their their disciplines mm-hmm. as writers and, and thinkers, is going to you know, fall into, you know, uh, have a bearing on their thoughts around this. You've also been very involved, I understand, with the uh, Persian Film Festival, um, which is also coming up next week, uh, I believe. Is there anything in the festival that you think people should keep an eye on? Or just generally, what do you think the festival will bring um, that people should be excited about? Well, this year the festival has a great lineup, and I really actually like the opening night. Um, feature which is a man of integrity and the opening night feature is always a you know special event because there's food there is um, music so it's a bit of a you know cultural kind of engagement more than just going in and to watch the film so I really would recommend that because um, the film is a fantastic film I mean all the films are great but this one is particularly yeah Now, I've just found some of the details uh, for the talk uh, next week. If you are interested in going, it's on the 4th of September, um, which is next Tuesday, I believe, 6.30 till 9pm. It includes quite a feast, um, I believe $70 for a single ticket, $120 for couples. Uh, You can call up and book um, there. If you actually um, are interested, I'll put up some details on the site. It's at the Ali Kapu Persian restaurant, which I think I've actually been to. It's an amazing food. Um, So that's that's particularly delightful. Um, Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It's been really such a pleasure, Sanaz. And I wonder if there's anything that you would, particularly because... uh, you know, we have had some changes to our political um, uh, regime over the last week. We have a new prime minister who is sadly the person who coined the stop the boats um, mm. phrase back in the early 2000s, which is a great shame um, that the Australian people will have to bear that that is now our representative prime minister. Um, is there anything on that note that you would like to, to say with, with regards to people who actually very much have enriched Australian society um, coming here from other countries? Well, what I say is just come and educate yourself, you know, immerse yourself. It may be the Persian culture, it may be, I don't know, the Vietnamese culture, but just come and immerse yourself in events like this so that you are educated and you can you can hold your own space and not be at the will of, you know, leaders who may not have that education. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sanaz, for for joining us today. Thank you. It really was lovely to talk to you. Uh, And again, I'll put up some details about the event that Sanaz is involved in. Three. Triple. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. 
You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.